1: You love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers, analysts, pundits—they're all fair game. It's sports media mayhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem podcast. My name is Alex Dreamer, as you heard in our amazing opening, and as we make it through August here on this Tuesday, August the 16th, uh, really excited for my interview here today. It's an interview that really can only be done on a sports media podcast, so that's why we're doing it. Ethan Strauss is a longtime NBA reporter. He covered the Warriors at the height of their dynasty for ESPN and The Athletic. He has a great book out on the Warriors' dynasty as well. But over the last year plus, Ethan has been doing something totally cool. He started a substack, the House of Strauss substack, and basically he peels back the curtain on a lot of the most secretive inner workings of the sports media industry and really ESPN. He wrote an incredible piece last week that got a lot of traction about how Adrian Wojnarowski's relationship with Nets GM Sean Marks was the reason why ESPN did not report on Durant's ultimatum to Nets ownership last week. It is a crazy story. and so happy to have Ethan on the show to talk about that, his experience at ESPN, how the sausage is made at ESPN, and all sorts of other media uh, topics. So Ethan Strauss is coming up in a few moments. You don't want to miss that. Um, But before we get to Ethan... I am going to take some time here at the top and do a little bit of a victory lap. Last week on the show, I predicted that we would have a drip, drip, drip of negative Red Sox news as this season winds to a close, this now last place season, yep, even after a series win, an actual series win against the Yankees, an AL East team, the Red Sox are still two games out of 500, 15 games out of first place, four and a half out of a playoff spot with three teams to leapfrog, so... Heading into and immediately after the trade deadline, we had a pair of stories from John Tomasi about the frustration in the Red Sox clubhouse that obvious holes were not addressed. That wording is taken exactly from his story. And then Alex Beard, the Globe reported last week about all the confusion up and down the organization about the Red Sox lack of direction, and that mainly means Heim Bloom's lack of direction. So... Over the weekend, we got a third. Buster Olney published a story with a bombshell of a headline on ESPN. What the hell are they doing up there? Making sense of the Boston Red Sox in 2022 and beyond. In that line, what the hell are they doing up there? Comes from a rival front office executive, or at least that's how Olney describes him or her. And the article is a really succinct and detailed rundown of a lot of the errors that the Red Sox have made Underheim Bloom, in terms of player personnel, only talks about the Hunter-Renfro trade and the embarrassingly low return that they got from Mookie Betts, and uh, he mentions that the Red Sox are 13th out of 30 teams in spending since Bloom took over after Chris Sale's extension. And whenever I read a story like that from a guy like Buster only you know, what the hell are they doing up there making sense of the Boston Red Sox? My question is always, who's leading him in that direction. Obviously Buster Olney follows the game close enough where I'm sure he's perfectly capable of writing a column on his own detailing the Red Sox lack of direction and detailing some of Heim Bloom's more high profile mistakes again getting a lackluster return from Mookie Betts chief among them. But also and granted, I'm kind of just speaking out of my you know what, but I'm kind of not as well. Uh, a guy like Buster Only does not usually write a long piece like that with these kinds of specific examples unless he's getting led in that direction or unless he hears murmurs about this being talked about within the Red Sox organization and throughout Major League Baseball. And as this season comes to a close, we have about six weeks left. Maybe the Red Sox make some sort of miraculous playoff run. I think baseball reference has their playoff chances at 4.4% after Sunday's win against the Yankees. So, hey, anything is possible, as our good pal KG used to tell us. But this could get ugly in short order. And we know how perception-driven this Red Sox ownership group is. And we know in the past, when they've had flame-out-type seasons, there's been a lot of blame to go around. And this ownership group has no problem Anonymously assigning that blame uh, could Heim Bloom be taking a lot of the shrapnel this off season? I, we're already getting that. I mean, that Alex Globe at Alex Speer report in the Globe. Not flattering. This Buster only story definitely not flattering. We have reports from the clubhouse. Not flattering. Xander Bogarts told everyone that he doesn't think the Red Sox got better at the trade deadline because they dealt Christian Vasquez. So this continues on. And the Red Sox do indeed miss out in the playoffs, which they have about a ninety-six a ninety-six percent chance of doing, excuse me there. Uh, then again, I think this could get really ugly. And I think we're gonna see more of these stories with some anonymous quotes, but also just a lot of analysis, specific analysis, about Heim Bloom and the errors he's made. And the question always is, where is this coming from? So Keep an eye out for more of that, because I think there's a lot more where that came from. Also, a big story happening in the NFL in terms of uh, how one team president is treating a media member who asked his quarterback a tough question. Jason Wright is the new president of the Washington Commanders, and he ripped a DC TV reporter, Scott Abraham, over pointed questions he asked to Carson Wentz in an interview. Uh, this is what Jason Wright tweeted about said interview. Quote Thankfully, Carson demonstrated grace in class in response to this pompous, unprofessional mess. I recognize you have made a living on childlike provocation, but it needs to be called out. Don't expect special access, and good luck building rapport with the guys. Woo! So that's Jason Wright not leaving anything to interpretation with Scott Abraham. And before I go further, let me just read you the two more contentious questions that Scott Abraham, a reporter for NBC7 in Washington, asked Washington's new quarterback, Carson Wentz. Question one, there has been kind of a narrative out there in training camp that you've been a little inaccurate on your throws. Consistently inconsistent has been a kind of a terminology. How would you assess your performance in training camp? And is that characterization fair? Number one. Number two, real talk here, Carson. It's been well documented. Philly didn't want you. Indy didn't want you. Do you think this is your last chance to prove that you can be a starting quarterback in the NFL? And I say, good on Scott Abraham for asking those tough and pointed questions and good on Scott Abraham for not hiding either. You know, the oldest trick in the book when you're interviewing an athlete or a newsmaker, and you want to ask a tough question, but you want to couch it a little bit, go, oh, it's not me, it's them. You say, you know, Carson, a lot of people are saying, you know, Philly didn't want you, Andy didn't want you. I are you going to prove them wrong this season? You know, make it like you're really on their side. Scott Abraham didn't do that. He said, look, it's been well documented. You flamed out in Philly. You flamed out with the Colts. You're now here in Washington. Seems like you're, do you think this is your last chance? There was a, there's a way to word that to be slightly less confrontational. I probably would have said something like, especially if I'm face-to-face, I'm a lot less tough when I'm face-to-face with somebody than when I'm doing it over the phone or what have you, as I think most of us are, uh, except Scott Abraham, I guess. But I would say, you know, hey, Carson, uh, didn't work in Philly, didn't work with the Colts. Do you think this is your last chance to prove you could be a starting quarterback? I think that question would have accomplished the same goal, but Good on Scott Abraham for saying, screw that. I'm just going to ask the question, the way that it's being phrased on talk radio and the way that fans are phrasing it. And then for Jason Wright, the Washington team president, to go on Twitter and publicly blast Abraham is weak, weak sauce, especially coming from the president of an organization that, uh, you know, is under federal investigation. we could say, for the way it's treated many of its, uh, some of its female employees over the years. And I know these accusations predate Wright's time with the team. He was only hired two years ago. But still, anybody who's collecting a check from Daniel Snyder uh, should pump the brakes before they go all in on calling someone else out for treating somebody unfairly. So there's Jason Wright. I'm sure he'll be doing a lot more yelling at the media this season if tough questions aggravate him. Because, well, Washington, that football team, their players deserve a lot of tough questions to be asked, especially Carson Wentz at this juncture. So there you have it. Coming up on the other side, you'll hear my conversation with Ethan Strauss. It's a sports media mayhem. Thank you, as always, for listening. And welcome back to the show, as I was saying in the opening. Very pumped to have Ethan Strauss with us here today. Uh, Ethan, how are you? Thanks for coming on.
1: I'm I'm doing very well. Got a good night of sleep. I'm good. fired up because I've just been listening to the Edwin Diaz uh, entrance song on loop. So I'm in a good mood.
0: <laughs> you and everybody else. Is it, what's yeah. your favorite? What's your favorite closer entrance of all time? Mara?
1: Oh, I'm from San Diego. So it's Trevor Hoffman, Hells Bells. And yeah. there was just something so beautifully Pavlovian about that because you would almost forget about it. I just remember being a kid right. at the old Jack Murphy Stadium. And then you hear that first uh, that first boom, and everybody lose their minds. I just think that's such a special moment to cultivate and not enough uh, teams in sports really think deeply about it. And I don't want to get derailed before we start talking, but for all the great things the Warriors did right, it it does bum me out to a certain extent that they never captured that greatness and created those sorts of uh, indelible touchstones because I'm not sure it takes a whole lot of effort to really figure out how to do that and give us something similar to what the uh, Chicago Bulls had in the 1990s with that serious song uh, that everybody loves that I actually went to a wedding where the the groom walked out to it because he was a Chicago <laughs> guy and he was a big Bulls fan. So I just think that was leaving I don't want to say money on the table it was leaving a little something deeper on the table yeah. but you know I think Warriors fans will take the great run and and accept it for what it was.
0: The Celtics even did that with Garnett though it was only one mm-hmm. title. We had like the anything is possible Uh, Ah. Slogan, even though it wasn't really a song, they would play it at the garden all the time. And yeah, so we see that. Um, So reading your Substack House of Strauss, if you look at the About section, you write the following. You pay for me to be traitorous to my brethren, committed to entertaining you first, and considering industry pieties last. Uh, My question is, what prompted you to start the Substack and go with that mission statement?
1: Wow. Um... I think I was getting burnt out. I think I was getting yeah. worse in my job. That, that's not the most flattering portrayal of myself, but um, I was at the athletic and covering the warriors and we had this amazing run. And I had these coworkers that I, I just couldn't have had better coworkers than uh, Tim Kawakami, Marcus Thompson, and Anthony Slater. But uh, an unfortunate consequence of them being so good is I found myself with less and less to do and found it harder and harder to contribute and um I I just found I think the pandemic shook up a lot of us and it 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 reframed what we were into. Yeah. And I didn't want to be one of those people who was just pretending because I think the readers and the fans can smell it on you mm-hmm. when you don't care as much about the actual game. And right. so I wanted to take things in the direction of my interest because I naively believe that if I'm interested in something, it can be contagious. But I also think that if I'm not interested in something, I am, I'm drawing dead, and it's not going to catch on at all. So I started drifting towards some of these questions about the business of the sport, the culture of the sport, a lot of these issues where everybody kind of knows, but nobody says, at least to the reader. And I wanted to go in the direction of that and
0: see if it might work. And thank God it has. People love reading about sports media, too, and media in mm-hmm. general. Yeah. Which definitely helps. I, I was gonna ask you too. Like, so you've covered the NBA for such a long time, ESPN athletic. Um, you wrote a book on the Warriors Dynasty. I was going to ask if covering the league like that so intensely for so many years, like I feel like that kind of has to deflate your interest a little bit, though maybe not, because yeah. you have guys as you mentioned oh, yeah, no. you do it for decades. So but it would for yeah. me.
1: I think it, no, it does because it's almost just too much. It's almost too much of a great thing. And there's such an energy. There was such an energy around that team. It was almost physical. Um, the amount of buzz around them when they were at the top of the top. And the interesting thing is it was the job everybody wanted in sports. There was even an ESPN sort of in-house, the the dream job in sports about covering the Warriors. And I think I was interviewed and Mark Stein was interviewed and, um, but the funny thing about it was that it really had this uh, quick burnout rate where uh, Rusty Simmons, the original beat writer for the Chronicle, kind of burned out and he had physical problems and uh, Diamond the just quit. He was doing it for the other paper in town and he just quit. And um, I, I got fired in 2017, um, but I was you know, on the precipice of quitting as well. So there was just something to the scale of interest in sports that it doesn't, it doesn't go up like 20% because it's the team of the moment. It goes up a thousand percent. And that's the, that's just the way it works. And it's potentially really good for your career. And it's cool to be at the center of things, but it's just not a sustainable, it's not a sustainable path. And I'm not trying to complain about it because I know it was really good that it happened for me. And I know a lot of people would prefer it to doing uh whatever they're doing but uh it did it did chew people up and spit them out and i do think that um it it did have an a, an impact of accelerating uh, the uh, time it would take me to maybe get less interested in the actual who wins the game part of sports.
0: Yeah. And like, give us a little look into what your schedule is like. Cause I was reading, you wrote about Adam Schefter and the problem with on this was the title. And you tell a story about how the warriors are chasing Durant in free agency. And then he signs with the warriors and your bosses want you to basically camped out at a downtown Marriott over 4th of July yeah. weekend to cover it after the whole season, NBA finals, et cetera. And you know, that just seems so, so demanding. And like you read something like that and it's if Schefter is the, what you're being judged against or Woj as well, Yeah, these are like cyborgs. I don't see yeah. how a regular person could compete with them. Right. I mean,
1: yeah. Almost like a monk, you have to give up your life. Yeah, right, um, and, right? And just live this existence if you're going to do it right. And I mean, ESPN is not wrong for wanting it either. No, right. uh, not everybody can make a, a ton of money doing this. And the differentiating factor is just that willingness to go the extra mile. But at at that particular moment, because I had been following the 73 win season. And so it had just consumed our lives. My wife was just, no, no, you aren't. I'm I'm putting my foot down. You're not camping out at the Marriott with no promise of how long any of this is going to take. Um, And you do stuff like that and you do get cut out of the mix, which I think in a way is correct. I'm not a TV star, right? I'm not somebody who should be um, Peter principled in that direction. Um, But there is this sense that you're going to kill your career if you start trying to lay down the law and say, here are the boundaries. And when you're at the center of things, I think what it, 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 it inculcates the sense in you of this hyper vigilance that's not entirely comfortable. And with the Warriors, they were so the team of the moment. And when you were at a press conference and somebody said anything, if I didn't write a little news story on it, if it was deemed newsworthy by the ESPN news desk, I was getting, I was getting chewed out. It was bad, but it was very hard to know what was newsworthy because it's newsworthy. Nature was connected to the fame and the intense interest in the team. I mean, I remember there was a moment where, where Clay Thompson said that he was a fan of the Harry Potter books and the news desk got mad at me for not writing that up as news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought to myself, it's news that Clay right. is fan, <laughs> he's a it, it's news that Clay is a fan of literally the most popular book. Right. That is the news. Right, right, That's right, the news.
0: Right, right.
1: Okay, well I don't know what the news is anymore and I'm just going to be in this paranoid state of worrying every time I hear a player say anything. Right. That I need to run and run that up the flagpole, and th- so that's what it, that that's the uh, that that's the state that you're often in, and that's just one example. And I know again, a lot of fans are are gonna say that I, yeah, my job sucks. I have no sympathy. You got to follow around the wars. I get it. I'm, I I get it. I get it. I'm just saying that you have that weird pressure on you of the news can come from anywhere at any moment, and you're not sure what the news is, and you're gonna get yelled at if you don't put it out there. You might go a little crazy after a while. That's all I'm saying
0: yeah totally well it's funny you mentioned uh and this maybe shows you how warped my brain is you mentioned clay thompson harry potter i'm like oh that'd be like a cute little blog post to write if you're well, looking for some you cheap go. clicks. but it's true and then because yeah. everything that you do say is news because there's also just so many people especially a team like the warriors covering every single second yes. they're so thirsty for clicks and it's not the writer's fault i mean it's really just being a cog in the machine but yeah. i mean that's why there's it's Everything nobody's
1: is, fault that's the right. thing we need to emphasize that's right. the weird it' just has this it's almost its own animal it's nobody's fault the bosses aren't bad you know the other writers aren't bad It's just that moment where a whale carcass falls to the bottom of the ocean and every sea creature jumps out and is trying to get as much meat off those bones as they can and it's it's a competitive. It's just a competitive uh, sprint, basically, and uh, it's hard to, hey, maybe they're getting the sustenance they need, but it's not a fun fun job at that very moment.
0: You wrote a piece last week that got a lot of attention about ESPN and Adrian Wojnarowski and the Kevin Durant ultimatum that was the biggest NBA story of the day, of the week. ESPN largely ignored it until the Nets owner made a statement uh, affirming his support for GM Sean Marks and Steve Nash that night. And you connected the dots and you have a lot of sources within ESPN, but basically you wrote that Woj's tight relationship with Nets GM, Sean Marks. is probably a reason why the story was buried on ESPN all day. My question is, and everyone should read the piece, but my question is, how does that happen at ESPN? The biggest name in sports media, multi-billion dollar you know company that a very important reporter's sources, yes, but still one guy's relationship with a relatively obscure GM. How does he how do you get to that point where it affects news coverage like that?
1: Yeah, it does have shades of the parasite taking over the host, right. doesn't it? That right. yes, you're supposed to have these good dynamics with your sources so you can get the big story. Right. You don't you don't then ignore the big story because you've got a good dynamic with your sources and it to me reveals maybe a fundamental fundamental misunderstanding of what sports fans want and are into. Yes. There's this competition to be the person who beats a press release on Twitter by uh, a few minutes and to tweet the news of something out first, but that's not, that's not actually drawing people into the sport and making them enjoy the sport more. They want commentary on what's going on and they often want opinion they want analysis, and the issue with ESPN's model currently is that they are promoting breaking the news first to the detriment of those other things that people actually want. Why is it to the detriment? Well, here's why: in order to break the news first, you often need the say so or the help from agents and from GMS um, and or from the league office. Now, in order to do that, you don't want to ruffle any feathers. So people get into this neurotic state in the company of, oh, my God, we can't step on this person's toes. We can't step on Hmm. that person's toes. And in the case of this particular scenario, for instance, I actually don't know whether it was dictated by Woj that you can't touch this story because of Sean Marks. But what I do know is that Woj has jumped on people, jumped down their throats within the company when they say things that his sources don't want said. So perhaps at a certain point, hmm. the institution is paralyzed because they have a sense that certain sources are the sources that you don't really mess with. And they know that this source is involved. And who knows what's going on? Maybe Woj is in Bermuda. Maybe he turned off his phone. I have no idea. Right. And they're just all scared. And I don't think that is a good emotional space to be operating out of, to be operating out of fear when you're the biggest company with the biggest megaphone. Um, one guy and people can love him or hate him who I think operates in a different way is Stephen A. Smith, because in some ways he's bigger than the ESPN. Yes. And so he's just going to do whatever he's going to do. And I think maybe they should take a lesson from that and adopt more of Stephen A. Smith's mentality. Um, (laughs) not, not completely, but just the mentality of, I'm going to talk about whoever, if they're in the news and they are to be talked about. And not the mentality of, oh, my God, we have to break a story first on Twitter. We can't offend such and such because then you're subject to this ludicrousness of not talking about the biggest story in sports because of some GM that most people, frankly, have never heard of.
0: Right. And I was going to ask, too, I'm I'm always curious about how the dynamics work at a place like ESPN. Like you have Woj, then you have Brian Windhorst, who maybe is a small notch below him on the insider scale. You have others under them. Is there, are there, is there a lot of communication between the so-called insiders? Are you working on this? Are you working on that? Is it Do they freelance as their own brands, if you will? How does like that whole process work? I'm, I'm interested.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of communication. Occasionally, you, you do see a double byline, um, but it can be a little bit complicated because if somebody is in an authority position there the good way to do it is to supplement and shepherd and help somebody who's a little lower status to get their name out there. But sometimes it does have this quality or it can have this quality of in half baked, where are you eating that fruit cup? Uh, I want that fruit cup Um, (laughs) domination from the authority figure where they can put their stamp on things that maybe they didn't do the most work to get in on. Now I can't tell you what all the dynamics uh, are there, but, um, I can say that that's always a tricky thing for organizations uh, to figure out because the collaboration certainly helps when everybody can be in communication about what they know. And it it helped when I was at The Athletic where we were trying to pool our knowledge from the people we talked to. Um, But I think at at ESPN, there might be more of a sense of um, having to make it seem like the uh, top dogs are indeed the top dogs. And that might infect a lot of what they're trying to do there.
0: You mentioned that a lot of this insider reporting, if you will, is just beating press releases by a few minutes at the end of the day. Why do you think ESPN puts so much value on that?
1: Well, I think it's a pride thing and it has its origins um, years ago when John Skipper was still running the company and during the NBA draft, Woe starts breaking who is going to be drafted before the picks are announced on ESPN on television. And before the ESPN reporters put it out there and Skipper is embarrassed by that and says, look, I want to win this battle. And I think that is the genesis of when they gave Woj a godfather offer to leave leave Yahoo and come to ESPN. Now, uh, that sort of thing matters to corporations. They want to seem like they're first in everything. And in fairness to them, um, I think there is this fear, especially uh, with tech this is sort of a tech mentality of if there is another corporation that is specializing in something that we aren't specializing in, it might be used as a, an eventual foothold to crush us. Right. And Yahoo has an advantage over us now in this respect, how are they going to leverage that? Is it going to be bad for us? Hmm. So I think that there, there is that fear and it informed this uh, whole pursuit of uh, tweeting out the news first. And I know if you if you read that Washington Post article on Adam Schefter, yep. they do have this argument for how it helps ratings. Right. I, I don't really believe that. Okay. I think I'm a very simple man. I look at their ratings. I see they've gone down massively since they've uh, gone about this uh, I- agenda. So look, if, if it matters, it's not mattering enough. It's not mattering at scale. Um, I can't do the counterfactual, of course, where I can invent some other ESPN that for years pursued a different path. And I, I, I compared the two. But, my suspicion is that is that this has not been very good for them., uh, they have had a decline in interest in their programming, and uh, they wouldn't have to make such a creative argument for why they're doing it if it was actually working.
0: That's a really good point. And you also look at what reporting is the most impactful. Like I would say that Seth Wickersham has some the most impactful yeah. reporting around the NFL and the Patriots the last, I don't know half de- you know half decade, And yeah. he's a real kind of old school feature writer. Not just wording out, you know, longer shelf life.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. People God. like that stuff. I think that there was the cynical, dismissive, uh, dismissiveness towards that sort of reporting, but it's popular. I mean, the Athletic was built off of it. Right. Um, and they built themselves into a company off the demand for this. Uh, people do like going another layer or two deeper. So it, it, I think ESPN was well positioned. Uh, to be that voice more so and they could have benefited from it but instead they went down the route of uh, trying to beat the press release and I'm just not sure what the demand is for that I, I don't I don't know I don't know if it's really working and I think the danger from their perspective that is unseen by perhaps the corporate chieftains who sign off on it and try to win this game They can't see the externalities. They can't see the cost of winning this game. They can't see that in order to win the game, you have to compromise uh, so much of all the other stuff you do. And so you have the biggest news in sports happen. And for the entire day, uh, while it's light out, you have no information about it while everybody's looking to your website and turning on the TV to get some sort of commentary. I don't think the people running ESPN anticipated that this might be a cost of trying to win the press release game, but it appears to be so.
0: Uh, My last thing for you, Ethan, and I agree on all of that is um, uh, obviously I have a lot of Boston listeners uh, Durant, the Celtics, huge story all summer long Um, is the perception of Durant being this, the most rabbit eared guy ever. Is that, is that as true to the reality? And if so, what's your favorite, like example of that? I know you have a few in in your book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I could talk about one from my book. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I have some sympathy for it, by the way I, I should just say before I, I talk about this That I don't think it's so divorced from what propels him to be great And in another era, we might approvingly cite that and we, we would talk about how Michael Jordan is such a maniac And that's part of why he's right. great uh, Kevin Durant wants to prove all the haters and doubters wrong Maybe that's part of why he's great But it does manifest itself in these ways you wouldn't expect. Um, At The Athletic, I wrote about how the Warriors were tailoring their offense in a way to make Kevin Durant happier, Um, and they were basing it a little bit less off Steph than they would want to, to cater to KD. And I, I was told that yeah he is he is livid about this article he is really pissed off about this article hmm. i go oh boy okay let's see what's going to happen uh we go into shoot around in sacramento with the rest of the media you know shoot around is basically a little practice they do same yep. day of a game in the morning everybody's all kind of groggy and the the arena is empty and you walk into the arena and they're they're getting their shots up uh kevin sh- takes a shot and then the ball is still bouncing after it goes through the net. And he just storms up to me in front of the other media members. And he just starts going in on me and just arguing at me. And it's just kind of a blur. And he's just so angry. And I'm just trying to say, hey, well, what is it in the piece that you don't yeah. like or you know disagree with? And finally, with his voice like shaking and angry, he goes, you don't know what makes me happy. You know? <laughs> and storms off. And then from the rest of the season on, the other media members would always just crack on me that way, where if I said something they didn't like, they would yell in that tone of voice of, you don't know what makes me happy. (laughs) But hey, there's something to the honesty of that. There's something to uh, the candor of that. And there's something to Kevin Durant where he is so frustrating to deal with in so many ways. And yet nobody I know who deals with them hates him including hmm. myself. You know, yeah. this is a guy who in a press conference was basically accusing me of being bad at my job and trying to embarrass me. And I don't even hate him. Huh. So he's a fascinating guy. And there's something likable about him, despite despite this inward focus, one could wow. maybe call it narcissism. And uh, I, I wish him the best. I wish him the best in this whole saga
0: we'll see what happens. Uh, Ethan Strauss, houseofstrauss.substack.com. Ethan, thanks for your time, man. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Alex.